Well, good day. I'm Mark Sylvester, Ambassador of 805 Connect and your host for this 805 Conversation, where we talk to fascinating people you'll want to know better. Our show is sponsored by California Lutheran University School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services. Thanks to them both for their support and encouragement. And thanks to our podcasting partner, Pull String Press, for this great studio. And Patrick, my co-host. Hey, Patrick. Mark, that was your best opening ever. 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 <laughs> 82 times. 82 I finally times. got it. Nailed it. I would love you to meet Steve Ainsley. Steve, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so uh, – you, you were gone for a while. Mm-hmm. And then you came back to Santa Barbara. We met 20 years ago. And uh, – where did where did you go for that period of time? <laughs> we missed you. Well, um, I uh, work brought me here. I, I was in the newspaper business. I worked for the New York Times Company uh, most of my career, and they owned the local newspaper here in Santa Barbara. So I came here in '93 as the publisher of the Santa Barbara News Press. I was here for about six years, and then uh, the company moved me away. Uh, first to Tampa. Oh, you were a company man. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I was. Yeah, I guess I was uh, a rarity nowadays, but. Uh, the company moved me uh, to more of a corporate role, and we lived in Tampa, Florida for about six years. And then um, at the time, the New York Times Company also owned the Boston Globe. And so in 2006, uh, around middle of 2006, uh, I was made publisher of the Globe and moved there until I retired in early 2010, and we decided to come back. So. Let's go to Boston for a second. Mm -hmm. When you watched the movie Spotlight, what was that like? It was fun for me. Uh, Fun for me. I tell people I'm probably the worst person in the world to watch that movie with. (laughs) Oh, uh, oh, sure. But uh, it actually – I I was not there during the the, uh, Spotlight period. I came about two and a half, three years after that. Uh, but I will say it was a remarkably accurate movie. In, really? Yeah, in terms of just the small things, uh, several of the actors, uh, the key actors, bear a, a remarkable physical resemblance to the, oh, to the real people. Two guys you worked with. Absolutely. And the sets were incredible. The, uh, the Globe newsroom looks precisely like as they de- depicted it in the movie. And I think Far more important, the process of investigative journalism that's uh, basically shown in the movie is really accurate. It's, uh, you know, I think even in, I thought the movie was very exciting and thrilling, uh, but it's, you know, reporters aren't running down streets and chasing people, and they're not action figures. They're people that do extraordinary work through the long, laborious slog of finding data. sure felt that way, right? Yeah, uh, but they made it exciting. So uh, yeah, it was a fun. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Is that? But in investigative journalism, as a is is there that that it feels like the weight was really in, and and so is this a real life moment where where there's a journalist who's trying to defend their point to you, like trying to like like argue that that they have found something revolutionary, and or because that's always the 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 gag, sure. right? Is that is that the the publisher is just like, well, we can't print that, <laughs> you know? Is is that is there really that kind of pushback on a on it, a? It really doesn't work that way. Right. Uh, you know, more far more typically, at least at the, you know, everyone does their job a little differently, but. Uh, in my experience, I would uh, my only interaction in terms of the content of the paper would be with the editor, mm-hmm. and uh, there were a few times uh, where that we still had the spotlight team. Spotlight team is still sure. there today, 
And um, a couple of times the editor would come in and tell me, you know, after the fact what they're working on, this is going to be published in two weeks' time or whatever. Uh, certainly not asking permission, and I wouldn't expect uh, he or she to ask permission. You know, that's their job. My job is I, I always said throughout my career I had one, one decision. What is I'm, that? One decision I made in the newsroom, and that was to determine who the editor was hmm. or hmm. who the editor wasn't. Oh. And once you put them in place, that, that was the – while they were doing their work, that was what you had chosen for them to do. Correct. And if, uh, you know, they were – as with any business, if uh, they were falling short, you know, I – and the publisher would have hard decisions to make. But Just, is journalism suffering from that right now, that there aren't good, there, that, that, that that really strong editorial role is sometimes uh, bypassed? Well, I think that the struggle I have with, and I, and I think newspapers particularly will emerge through this, but yeah. what we see happening now around the country are, uh, and, and thank heaven this is happening, is that in one respect, is that you know, well-heeled individuals around the country are buying newspapers. You know, the Globe is now owned by uh, a local individual who, uh, John Henry, mm-hmm. who also owns the Red Sox, of uh, the Las Vegas newspaper was just purchased yep. by uh, yep. Mr. Adelson. Uh, and, and there's going to be more and more of that here in Santa Barbara. We have sure, a local individual who purchased the news press. Uh, the good news is that these people have means and they're enabling the papers to to uh, survive where they might not have otherwise. Uh, the concern is that, uh, and, and there's always this, uh, this push-pull when you have um, ownership of any newspaper, and that is, you know, what are the motivations behind the people wanting to buy the newspaper? Because it's, it's probably not a profit-driven motivation right now, is what you're saying? Uh, correct. Today right. it isn't. Uh, there are- Because they have the money. They have the money. Now, there's some very good examples of that. I think uh, what Jeff Bezos is doing with the Washington Post is terrific work. Hmm. Uh, I think he's... Describe that a little bit. What's, yeah, well, I didn't, he, was not aware of that. I think he's, uh, one, he's leaving the, uh, the newsroom alone. As it happens, to take this conversation maybe in a semicircle, if mm-hmm. not a full circle, the editor there is currently Marty Barron, who was the editor of The Globe during the Spotlight uh, investigation. Hmm. But um, I think also that... Uh, uh, Bezos, or at least his team, are looking for ways to take the uh, marketing strength of Amazon and and use that in terms of bringing the post uh, into this modern era. And they so far, they're doing it very well. And so far, at least from the outside looking in, there certainly is no evidence that uh, the ownership is influencing the newspaper. Uh, the newspaper is doing quite well, at least on the journalistic side. I can't speak to the business side, but it's doing very well on the journalistic side. So there's hope for it, but you know, it is going to be a this is a watershed moment, I believe, the next several years in uh, for journalism, particularly newspapers in the United States. Is that because of how technology disrupted that whole industry? Uh, no question. It changed the finances. No, no question. Uh, just you know, as an example. Uh, most of my career, uh, newspaper revenues were roughly somewhere between an 80-20, 90-10 split between advertising and circulation. So mm, between right. 80 and 90 percent of the revenues that a newspaper, any newspaper would receive, would be accrued from advertising. And then the much smaller 20, 10 to 20 percent would be circulation revenue, subscriptions and street sales. That is turned on its end. Uh, my last year at the Globe, uh, circulation actually... Uh, 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 exceeded circulation revenue, exceeded advertising revenue, and that was you know what uh, six years ago. Now it's even more. You know, newspapers are increasingly having to price the newspaper much higher to offset 
as right. you point out, the, the loss in revenue to, due to the Internet. And um, that's specifically Craigslist. <laughs> well, Craigslist didn't help. That's oh, that's for sure. Right, because that took all the classified. The classified yeah, and, and classified uh, was you know, a page of classified advertising. Um, traditionally, is the most profitable yeah, page exactly. in the newspaper. Exactly, and that disappeared. Gone. Yeah. I, I, as I watched that happen, and as I was frustrated by it, um, wa- watching. Uh, newspapers shrink in their ability to to actively employ uh, you know investigative journalists and journalists with with you know high level of writing and integrity. Why I, I don't understand, and I've, I've I've asked a couple different people in the newspaper industry this. What, you, the the newspaper industry had all of the best journalists, had all of the best investigators, had the the full network of 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 how to get all of the information. I do not. I just don't understand how Gawker and and the other like online media sources, BuzzFeed and all this, got in there and just kind of like cut it off at the knees when 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 the newspapers already had, you know, kind of like the infrastructure in place to do the best journalism. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, uh, for whatever reason, it was like they didn't kind of pivot fast enough, or they didn't. And and I'm not saying that you know going online sooner would have necessarily helped as much yeah. as just like you. You, you know, it's like you're the industry that it's it's like the car industry not wanting to shift to electric. You already are good at manufacturing cars. Why wouldn't you just pivot? You know, why would you hold on to the old model so long? Yeah. Why did why did newspapers hold on so long? Well, there's there's two or three questions in there. Sure. So yeah. uh, let me address the uh, investigative journalism piece first, uh, because I think that's the one that at least is of greatest concern to me. Greatest yeah, concern. Sure. Uh, yeah. The uh, investigative journalism is enormously expensive enormously expensive. And people say, well, how could that be? It's really pretty simple. Uh, And I'll use the Spotlight team at the Globe as an example. That team, which fluctuates between probably six and seven individuals, uh, will typically work on two, maybe three stories a year. And that's it. And uh, oftentimes, I mean, not, not a majority of the time, but it's not uncommon for them to work two or three months on a story and it becomes a dry hole. There's nothing oh, there. They right. never publish a word on it. Never publish a word. Huh. Uh, because, you know, they went in with a, a notion as to what the story would be and discovered it's not there. Uh, so now you've got, you know, five, six, seven people who have worked two or three months on something with nothing to show for it. And that's a lot of investment. Now, in the glory days, newspapers said, so what? Uh, nowadays, they can't say so what. Um, so most you know, newspapers of middling size uh, have decided we can't afford investigative journalism. You know, whether it be a 50,000 circulation, a 20,000 circulation, or even a lot of 100,000 circulation papers. Now, the hope is what you saw this year in the Pulitzers, uh, the uh, Tampa Tribune, one example, and you'll, you'll see more of this, the, uh, excuse me, the St. Petersburg Times, or now it's the Tampa Times, and uh, the uh, Sarasota Herald, Herald Tribune combined resource to put together an investigative piece that did win a Pulitzer. And I think that's the change that you're talking about, is where newspapers in the past were very iconoclastic. Mm -hmm. You know, this is our market. We're not going to partner. You're going to see more and more partnering with television, with radio, with newspapers, you know, to pool resources. And that is something that probably took us too long to figure figure out. out. Well, that's like when you'll Mm -hmm. hear on NPR, they'll have a, a, a... a journalist speaking about the topic that mm-hmm. they've, you know, called, oh, you and you write for the Washington Post or whatever. Precisely. And it makes perfect sense that, like, well, of course we would just, we wouldn't have our own investigative journalist, but we would go get the one who's, you know. Yeah. Well, a good example, if you're a ESPN watcher, when, mm-hmm. uh, 
when I was at the Globe, we had uh, at least three of our top sports people, sports writers, appeared on ESPN regularly, mm-hmm. you know, regular programs. And, you know, they were paid for that by ESPN. In the past, we would have said, whoa, wait a minute, you know, you work for us. You can't right. go out there. Right. <laughs> Don't give away our content right. on TV. Now, you know, at, at that point in time, we were saying, you know, God bless you, good for you, you know, go out and, you know, get whatever you can because that helps us keep you. Because, you know, they ESPN wanted... Uh, Jackie McMullen because she had a reputation as a Globe sports writer. Right, the credential that is the legitimacy. Precisely. So uh, I want to go back to the business model for a second. So if it's the, you know, the wealthy individual that's, you know, paying for them. Mm -hmm. Look at Huffington Post as an example, right, Mm -hmm. of that. Local gal makes good. Right? (laughs) Exactly. Um, He can still write the headlines. I I met uh, Russell Bishop who is the editorial director for HuffPo for mm-hmm. years and years. Lives in Santa Barbara, didn't know it. He, we'll have him on the show here in, in a couple of months. Uh, w- doing these things where you get the acclaim, you get the awards, you get the praise, you get all of that, how does that help the business model? You know, that's, that's an excellent question. And, you know, you could make a real argument that it may not help the business model. Uh, the... Uh, when, um, uh, you know, the, the Spotlight series ran, uh, it didn't have an appreciable effect on the circulation of the globe. Sure. It, uh, I mean, people were fascinated by it. They read it. Uh, I will tell you that in Boston at that, you know, I wasn't there at that time, but I was there two, three years later, and there was still um, there was still community concern, you know, within certain pockets of the sure. community about how the globe played that story and how aggressively they played it. Mm. Uh, so it's I, I think this is where you get into, you know, what really is the mission of the newspaper. And, uh, you know, forever, uh, the mission of the globe has always been, and, and I think papers of its size, is to root out what's uh, what's not right in our community. Mm. And it's it's more than just a mission. It's, it's really a... Uh, I think considered a a uh, professional responsibility because that's not just that. that's not just reporting the observation of a car accident right. that that's digging into why are these car accidents happening in this intersection? Yeah, and that's the the role then of the fourth estate. Well, I certainly believe so th- during the course of my career, and you know, to your point a little while ago, Patrick, the uh, and and you, Mark, the the Huffington Post, the Gawkers. I mean, there's a, certainly a place for that kind of reporting. Uh, but you're not going to see a great deal of hardcore uh, investigative journalism coming out of those. You'll, you'll, they'll, they will get uh, breaking news pieces right. very definitely. And they oftentimes will get pieces that more established newspapers elected not to run. Well, this is uh, Gawker, oh, Gawker oh, right yeah, now is oh. in is in the you know is is horribly positioned because of of, of the lawsuit against them by by former professional wrestler Hulk Hogan mm-hmm. who who they published a uh, a a, doc, a document of him uh, in a compromising situation. What how did that how what do you think about you know about that that case very definitely. And then what what do you think did they, was the ruling fair was the, is that a, is that a fair evaluation or did you think that they should have been uh, should have had a little more coverage and protection. Based on their their credentials, you know, I uh, at, at the at the very core of it, just them publishing that as news uh, was very troubling to me. Sure, you know, right, I mean, very troubling. I you know I don't consider that news. I mean, it's basically uh, for those that aren't aware, is a lascivious video of uh, you know a man and a woman, and, a and one of them has yeah. to be happens to be a very well known celebrity. Uh, 
Now, did they get a lot of page views as a consequence of that? Absolutely. Uh, the ruling, that's a tough one, you know, and I think if you put 10 people in a room, they're all going to say 10 things differently. I, you know, I believe that um, Gawker went too far. In that. That's my personal belief. I will have many friends in journalism who say that I'm walking down a slippery slope when I say that, mm -hmm. uh, that if it's out there and it's in the public domain, that, uh, you know, if you want to run it, you may run it. Uh, that personally troubled me. That doesn't match with the root out what's not right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's yeah. the point. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, I was got hooked into a an HBO series from 10, 15 years ago. Wild, Blackwood, Wildwood, Deadwood? Westwood, De Deadwood. Deadwood, mm -hmm. that's what it was. But there was a reporter. Yeah. And he didn't want to be the shill for everybody, right, just like reading the press releases. But it's like, no, I'm going to find, I'm going to tell the truth mm -hmm. here. And so uh, uh, let's go back to this conversation about this this upstart media that's happened, right, the, the online media. What is... How have millennials uh, focused this discussion or been foment of this change? Are they? Uh, in terms of the shift to yeah, what's the their what's their sites? role? I mean, I think yeah. that we're we're going to start to see. And we've we've talked about millennials a lot, and mm -hmm. they hate me using that word. But until <laughs> yeah. they give right and <laughs> give me one a better word, the one unifying thing yeah. about millennials, they, they don't want to be millennials. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they are consuming a lot of this, mm -hmm. right? A lot, and then I think our, their grandparents are reading this, still reading the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. So, how are those worlds colliding? You know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll start you, you, the usage of the term millennial. I uh, just attended my one of my daughter's uh, graduation. Uh, she's twenty six and just got her doctorate. Mm. And around dinner, both my daughters, they're about three age, three years apart in age, said. To, to me, said, do you realize that we're millennials? And I said, actually, I didn't. And she was horrified at <laughs> yeah. that. She yeah. said, I, I hate that. And I, so, I, so I get when you say they don't want to be called that. You know, I, was having, I have this conversation a lot with people because I think the, um, you know, certainly uh, however you get your news, and, and today a vast majority of people get it online, uh, which and, and I, don't, I have no concern about that. I mean, I, the newspapers I read are all online. Sure. So, you know, I don't read a print newspaper any longer. Uh, what I worry about is that, and, and for years this was the goal, which is to personalize the news. You know, you read mm. what you want to read. You can go to a site and say I'm interested in right. the world economy and sports, and that's what you're going to read. And that's fine except, and I think this is a significant exception, that it um, – it, eliminates the serendipity of, yes, of gathering yes. news, uh, whether it be a newspaper or your nightly newscast or even, a, a, you know, NPR. The, the echo yep. chamber. Yeah, exactly. You know, you turn a page on the newspaper, and I had no intention of reading the story on what is happening in, um, you know, Nigeria. Yeah. But it, it, it attracted me, so I read it, and I learned something about yep. something I had no intention. That is increasingly not going to happen with the way news is now, the direction that news is, is moving, which is I want to read what I kind of preordained as my interest, mm -hmm. which is fine, except that we lose that broader kind of community conversation. Didn't we used to preordain it by saying, I like the editor at the Globe, that's why I'm a Globe reader. I like the, I like the whatever it is. I like the writing that's happening. Like, like kind of that was the, the publisher and mm -hmm. the editor of a specific newspaper. Uh, 
presented a certain flavor or a certain style that 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 you were a Globe or a Times person or whatever person, and that's gone away. Well, certainly in in the in the if you go in the real wayback machine, sure. <laughs> when there were multiple newspapers and communities, that was precisely you know people would say you know I don't read the Daily News, but I read the New York Post, right. or right. I don't read um, you know the Chicago Tribune, but I read you know whatever. Uh, so there was a piece of that. I think uh, today it's uh, what's changed is at least throughout my career, uh, you know, certainly, you know, I published uh, seven newspapers during mm-hmm. my career, some, you know, from a very, very tiny little 2000 circulation weekly newspaper in West Virginia on up to the globe. And the one constant, two constants, one, not everyone in town read the newspaper, much to my dismay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no one would acknowledge that publicly, or very few people would acknowledge that they would not read the newspaper, that they didn't read the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't hear that. You know, if I ran into somebody and they weren't a subscriber and, and in conversation a story came up, you would typically hear people say, oh, I haven't had a chance to read it today. Right. Or, right. or, you know, I'm going to read it tonight. Or, you know, my paper was wet. Or, you know, there'd be this <laughs> litany of excuses. Um, and... But I think everyone felt an obligation to at least acknowledge that they read the newspaper because they cared about their community. Now, I think people – and the newspaper was that compendium of community information. Uh, I think people still very much care about the community. I'm certainly yeah. not yeah. drawing the lines between reduced newspaper readership and community you know, concern about or interest in your community. But I do think that um, because people are now – going to, you know, online and, and not kind of enjoying that serendipitous experience of reading or listening to a broad array of news in the community, they don't learn as much about their community mm. as they should. And uh, and I think this, you know, whether you want to call them millennials or one of the various gens that we, that we have, uh, you know, my concern is going forward that we have a generation or even multiple generations who are extraordinarily uh, savvy uh, in terms of getting information. They're getting more information than they ever did before. But I I do have some concerns that uh, they're not kind of getting information that might, that in the past would have just crossed their plate uh, without them really seeking it, if that makes any sense. It makes so much sense. And it's why there are two specific things that come to mind. Uh, CBS Sunday morning, Mm-hmm. I uh, TiVo that, and I watch it because I have no idea what's going to be on there. And I, it's kind of like going to TED. I, there's 70 talks, and I may understand three of the topics, mm-hmm. but I'm going to learn 67 new things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sure. the same reason I read The New Yorker, mm-hmm. exactly the same reason, because I know I'm going to get 18 pages on a topic that I wouldn't probably have chosen. But they're going to get me in the first two paragraphs, and I'm going to learn. I'm going to be better as a result. Yeah, no, I think I think those are two excellent examples. Uh, you know, using your New Yorker example, I subscribed for years, and then I dropped it because I felt guilty because I wasn't reading all of it. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that no one really expected me to read all of it. Anyone who actually reads it cover to cover has my undying respect. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've never been able to accomplish that. But in every issue, there's something there. That yeah. uh, broadened my day. It's not just the cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a lot of students who listen to the show, mm-hmm. and we have people from all over the world listen to the show. If someone was thinking about a career in journalism, what would the three things be 
questions that you would have them ask themselves to see if they really had the middle? Yeah, well, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I think, first of all, do they have sort of this innate curiosity okay. about, the, you know, toward their environment? And their environment okay. could be Manhattan or it could be Peoria. Okay. You know, it doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They just need to— So innate curiosity, that's one. Yeah. Uh, I think they, uh, they have to— uh, uh, think about this for a second. I guess they have to have sort of a, uh, a real desire to uh, share with others what they have observed. Okay. Uh, yeah. yep. and, and kind of a core belief that those things they observe that they think others will be interested in are, in fact, things that others will be interested in. You know, it, probably the most challenging uh, thing for a journalist, for me at least, is that you know, you write a story and no one reads it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. You know, it, that can be devastating. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have a kind of your that sixth sense that says, I know what people want, and I'm going to put it out there, and they're going to like it. Channel your Steve Jobs. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Right. And the third thing. <laughs> and the third thing, I guess, would be that um, you kind of have to get charged up with uh, things other than sort of— uh, Oh, you know, material advancement in the world. You have to get charged up when your uh -huh. community takes a step forward and you had something to do with it. Um, however small or large that might be, obviously, you know, you referenced Spotlight earlier. I mean, that, I will tell you, the, the people who worked tirelessly on that piece, you know, received uh, an, an emotional lift that will carry them for the right. rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. They didn't make any more money. Right. No, no, no. Make, <laughs> making a difference is a lot of time more valuable than making money. And and making a difference, I think, is uh, I may have given these uh, your three points in inverse order because I think the desire to make uh -huh. a difference uh, is probably at the core of everything. I love that. I know might, that might be our title. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to shift gears now. Okay. Good. So 20 years ago, I was invited. I was I was not a community servant guy. Mm -hmm. Not at all. I was running the software company and doing all that, raised my family, and lived, in, lived and enjoyed Santa Barbara. And I got invited to this meeting at the news press um, where I found 70 other software people and technology people who none of us knew one another. And you, had, you were part of a, a group of three or four people who were looking at Santa Barbara and the sustainability of the region and the economic, in turn, the economic uh, community project, the ECP, the consultant was brought in, and you know, you you studied and said, here are the. There had been a lot of work done before we got there, mm -hmm. and said there are these clusters of activity that are doing well. How can we help them do better? And that was the beginning for me of of many years of working in that arena. And now, then I took. 10 years off mm -hmm. and worked on intro networks and then came back with the 805 Connect project, which was the same thing, except instead of just Santa Barbara, it's let's look at the whole region. Um, and so it was interesting having that background. What was it about that project that got you so, you were lit up about that. I mean, you mm -hmm. really, really put a lot of time into that. Well, uh, no, I'm glad you brought it up. The uh when I moved here in 93, uh, 
that was a period where Santa Barbara was actually going through, a, I guess, at the, the tail end of a very difficult recession. Mm. And these were tough economic times, yeah. even for a place like Santa Barbara, which often doesn't show it when it's right. having difficulties. Sure. But, but it, it, it was, very definitely. Um, and a group of folks uh, prior to me coming on the scene uh, had put together what they referred to as a, white, a community white paper that basically focused on the uh, the challenges of you know just basically you know uh, running a business in Santa Barbara. You know it's a it's a wonderful place. It's gorgeous. Uh, it had it has for decades and probably always will to its credit have a, a strong cadre of uh, slow growth or no growth folks who want to their focus on life is to maintain yep. Santa Barbara as it is, and it's extraordinarily difficult to fault that. Uh, but nonetheless, a, a part of that, you use the word sustainability, and it's an important word in this context, is to have a, a healthy economy in the community. So someone introduced me to this group, and it, it seemed to me at the time that uh, the biggest challenge Santa Barbara had was kind of bringing, you know, heretofore disparate folks together. Right. You know, we... Uh, you're never going to convince, you know, an ardent environmentalist that putting up a new grocery store is a great idea necessarily. But if you can kind of bring everyone to the table, and it sounds kind of hackneyed today, but it hadn't been happening. It had, no, it didn't back happen then. at all. Yeah. Uh, hard to believe, but it hadn't been. And you bring people to the table, respect the differences, but say, you know, we, we must find some common ground here. Uh, and that was sort of the genesis of the Economic Community Project. And um, as you pointed out, you know, as we moved along, we realized that, uh, you know, the folks on the fringes, you know, whether they were just, you know, pro-pro business at no cost or pro-pro environment, regardless of, you know, the community cost, really weren't that far apart because at the core, they both wanted a successful community. They had right. a different definition of what success was, but they wanted a successful community. And, uh, you know, if we could just kind of channel that desire to have a strong community into, you know, common ground pursuits, like bringing the tech industry together sure, in the room, sure, sure. Uh, there'd be benefit to that. You know, I wouldn't say that we hit a bunch of home runs, because uh, we probably didn't, but I think we probably got a lot of scratch singles. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and over time, you know, people like yourself said, you know, there's, there's, some, uh, there's some benefit to uh, extending myself a little bit and getting a sense of what this community can be and not just, you know, falling into that trap of complaining about what it isn't. Did you have to dismantle their preconceived notions about who was on the other side? And if so, how do you do that? How do you get somebody who's pro-pro business versus somebody who's pro-pro environment? How do you, what's the, what's the main thing you have to kind of like eliminate from their vocabulary or? No, that's a good question. I think what we, the, the one, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who did an enormous amount of work. The, the one thing I will take credit for, sure. <laughs> and as, as modest as it was, your show. was <laughs> that, uh, was that I, I, I made the decision that we had to bring some folks who had strong roots in the environmental community into the tent. They had you know, to be they there. They had to be there. Yeah. Uh, if they weren't there, it was too easy for you know, the group to take shots at them without them being at the table. Oh, right. It's mm -hmm. easy to talk about somebody if they're not sitting at the table. Yeah. Right. And similarly, we had to learn, you know, what was important to them, mm -hmm. what was really important to them. Now, you know, there were, there were some positions that we'd never get together on, but there were many, many positions that we could get together on. And the key one 
um, was, you know, we brought up a fellow in who was a well-regarded, and to this day is a well-regarded uh, member of the community and involved in a lot of uh, environmental pursuits, although that's not his business, um, who came to that first meeting and said, the community needs to be sustainable. That's yeah. what needs to happen. And that one word, that was kind of an awakening for oh, the business word. types yeah. sitting around. Yeah. Because, you know, today that's become kind of trite. Sure, hashtag sustainable. Exactly. But back then, you know, no one, at least sitting around our little table, thought about sustainability as sort of being a watchword. And once we did, we said, you know, if that becomes, you know, maybe not the key mission, but if that becomes a piece of our mission – uh, and an important piece, uh, we have a chance to make something happen here because everyone wants their community to be sustainable, regardless of where your, you know, where your political interests are. You it's want sustainability. Literally, you found a common ground. Exactly. Literally, you found a, a commonality that existed in both on both sides. And that would not have happened uh, if we had not brought uh, this. We had more than one, but this fellow was the first, and uh, mm. he was very straightforward about it, and it made a difference. I heard a talk about a guy who had written a book on Leonardo da Vinci. I've heard of him. His, yes. <laughs> and his, the, the way he approached debate and conversation hmm. was to always have that uh, opposing view at the table. Mm -hmm. And whenever he wrote something, he would always make sure he had that person review his work. And he, he went out of his way to make sure that happened. That's the artist's critique. You have to have, you have to know what's not working in order to know what is working. So do you, so uh, Patrick is an art professor, mm -hmm. and uh, so do you actually go out of your way to yeah. look for that? Oh, absolutely. You want, you want the one voice in the room who's, who's, being, who's, who's, who's providing you know, realistic critique of, of what's happening. There's, we, we say this all the time when we put work on the wall or we put work in front of a, a group of people that we're critiquing, and this happens in, in almost every field in a really strong uh, you know, peer review in science, that you have to have the peer review in order to, to exist. But we're looking for, and I say, I instruct the students always that, like, they already know what they did right. Um, but by telling them what's not here or what could be better, you will be helping them get to the next place that they need to go. Well, you know, I spent 31 years with that belief. It's called getting both sides of the story. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I was going to say, it parallels, it parallels journalism perfectly to say, like, you need to check in on, yeah, yeah the you, facts on, on both sides. You, you need the contrarian in the room. Right, right. And, uh, and, if you, and if you get the contrarian who, you know, who is also, a, you know, wants to be, wants to also have contrarians to his or her point of view in the room. Is that also empathy? Uh like having empathy for the other side to know that like, well, they have an opinion that I don't, I don't agree with it, but I acknowledge that they're allowed to, or not allowed, but. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly think it's a, um, it, it's a desire for transparency. Sure. You know, it, it's a desire to make sure that, you know, whether you're going to press or you're putting a, a work of art on the wall or you're involved in a community endeavor that you want to make, sh you don't want to be surprised with a perspective that you hadn't considered before you take that important right. first step the oh, just you know, the whole thing a contrarian just got me off for, <laughs> off for just a second um what do you think uh, just looking at the community now you're retired um you're the chairman of the board of the cottage of cottage health oh, yeah right mm -hmm. and so that's your you came back and and i'm sure you're large uh, company experience and how you run big things uh, is helping you out a lot in that, right? It has. It has. You know, Cottage is a, is a large enterprise. Uh, you know, 
over 2,000 employees, actually close to 3,000 employees. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, healthcare, you know, we could spend uh, the next eight podcasts just trying to right. figure out healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. But the fact that it's, uh, it's so much of an issue today and in every corner of society uh, makes, you know, having the opportunity to serve on that, on the board of a hospital, any hospital, uh, fascinating. Because you know you get a window into uh, healthcare that you that very few people have or truly understand it, and certainly uh, we say this on the board all the time. Uh, we've all served on volunteer boards of one description or another. On a hospital board, certainly the cottage board, uh, it takes at a minimum a year just to be able to kind of understand the vernacular at a board meeting. Mm. I mean, oh. it, there's such oh. there's so there's so many complexities. To healthcare and the delivery of healthcare, that uh, you know, this is uh, this isn't come to the meeting and uh, not read the board book because you figure you can kind of get through. You know, you've really in healthcare you have to understand the mission. What what is? Can you put that simply? The mission. Well, uh, certainly the mission of Cottage is to provide uh, you know excellent healthcare you know uh, for the community and to pursue the uh, the importance of popu- of the health of the population so that's a bit of a shift in the past uh, you know hospitals really? well hospitals in general have always been in the sickness business mm. you know oh. uh, now hospitals uh, I think the ones that are understanding the future and particularly as it relates to the Affordable Care Act are realizing that there's an obligation to ensure or at least to further ensure the uh, the general health of the community uh, which is outside the hospital walls. Huh. So if, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the hospital or, or a community determined that it had an issue with childhood uh, obesity or childhood diabetes, right, right. Uh, those children may not yet be in the hospital, but the hospital has a very real mission. They're on the way. Yeah, yeah. they're on the way. And so yeah. we have to take at least help the community take measures to thwart that trend if as you, best we can. Especially if you if it's if it is identifiable. It's not this is not a mystery. Yeah. We can clearly see very specific things we could be doing. And it is their role, right? Is that the, that transition of like it is your job? Is that, your, that that's the direction that healthcare is going. Yeah. And and it it frankly it's uh, it's one of the mandates of the Affordable Care Act. It's I mean, the prevention piece. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely is. So what are some specific things Cottage is doing that we may not be aware of? Well, uh, we have about, let's see, last fall, uh, we created a new position, uh, Vice President for Population Health. Mm. And, you know, population health is you know, be going to become, if you haven't heard yet, it's going to become one of those buzzwords. I was just going to say circulate. I want to be buzzword compliant. <laughs> yeah. so. But it, it really means, you know, nothing more than what we were just discussing, you know, right. getting into that. How do we improve the overall health of the community? Um, this individual is spending, you know, this year uh, doing just what you're talking about, uh, trying to identify a small handful of pressing community health needs uh, that the hospital could in, and this is the key (laughs) key element of this, in partnership with Mm. many other entities in the community, uh, begin to, you know, chip away at at, uh, health concerns. We'll, uh, we're planning on in late January of 2017, having, uh, you know, some sort of uh, 
symposium here in the community to kind of oh. present what we've discussed oh. Oh. and uh, and uh, you know essentially look for at that point I'm sure we will have identified and probably hopefully have partners in the community and you know, I would think largely but not exclusively from the not-for-profit sector you know who will say you know we this is what we agree upon this issue X whatever X is or maybe one or two um, are things that we can work together on I, I would say that we're probably looking at, uh, we're not looking at kind of grandiose plans coming out. We're looking at things that we believe we can have a few early wins and begin to kind of shift the... Uh, so this is new know, territory for the hospital. Very new territory. Uh, it's, and increasingly, you're going to see hospitals around the nation uh, getting involved in this. You know, it's a natural adjunct of the, of the Affordable Care Act, and it's something that I think we all believe we have an obligation to pursue. Is uh, are you one of the are you the leading kind of edge of this? Do you think do you think Santa Barbara is leading in that way, or are you? Uh, I think we're you know leading is is hard because we have a long way to go. I sure. mean you know uh, I, I certainly want to, wouldn't want to give anyone uh, either the th- you got people in this room or the general community your listeners. The sense that we feel we have this nailed, because by no means do we feel we well, have nailed. Well, the fact that you've identified, have identified it, you said yeah. this is now on our radar. We're going to measure it. We understand what the objective is. I, I think we're probably further along in just that, in saying this is something we are going to commit to. Uh, I, I think that that's where I'll say that Cottage may be a few steps ahead of um, a lot of hospitals, but only a few steps, because, you know, I've been... Uh, I've been reading a lot of literature from hospitals, state hospital organizations around the oh, country, sure. and they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying okay. this is where we have to go. Is it hard, though, to, to, to uh, convince people to, to commit resources to something that is mostly observation, that doesn't have any kind of, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no report and markers that you can necessarily lay out and say, well, this is... You know, we're hoping it's kind of like spotlight, right? Like we're hoping that at the end of this year in 2017, he's, we're, this this person's going to be able to come back and provide us with some very valuable yeah. information. But there's a chance that that's not going to happen. Uh, I don't think there is a chance. Actually. No, guaranteed. I, 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 I think that I think that we're going to come back with some very uh, specific, uh, recognized uh, health needs in our community. You know, that's now that's the easy part, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the far more difficult part is what do we do as a community <laughs> to, to move that needle? To prioritize them. Exactly. Yeah. And but I, I think that uh, at least my hope and based on the work that's being done so far, I'm, I'm confident that we will find some, you know, a handful of, uh, of issues that people in the community generally say, oh, well, of course. You know, yeah, that's that's self-evident that we need to right. work on that. If we haven't done, if it's not self-evident, we've probably haven't done the job. It's hard for me to not connect a big, pretty big dot here between the ECP and what you just said, mm-hmm. where the you know the paper and, and the powers that be kind of led that charge around economic vitality. Now we're talking about community wellness, mm-hmm. and we're talking about community vitality as as a critical component. And in fact, it's probably true that in a year from now, there may be a community thing like the ECP, but it's more focused around health and wellness of which Cottage might be a driving factor in that. But to the point of it being a, a partnership with a lot of people, look at what the Santa Barbara Foundation has done with LEAF. Mm-hmm. 
and all of the things that they're doing. So I think Santa Barbara and this region in general is very good at that. Mm-hmm. Coming together with some someone in a leadership position said, "Hey, we need to focus on this, and we're going to put the the might of our you know brand and energy behind that, and we should be paying attention to it." And health and well, and certainly on this show, we talk about this a lot with with the entrepreneurs, you know, thinking about their own wellness and their health and employee health and wellness. And we've had, we and we've looked at that topic from a lot of different aspects. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested because I, I, I'm going to predict that kids are going to be a big part of that, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I just got it. They, I know they will be, and I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear that. The other thing, though, is we're at the end of 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> boom. Well, that went quickly. Just like that. And yeah. so, you know, we, we talked about the newspapers. That was fascinating. We talked about the Economic Community Project mm-hmm. and kind of where that was. But now that that's still a part of it. And then I love this thinking about the future. I mean, Cottage has come in, the beautiful facility. I, I love, you know, I love going there. My grandson was born there. We've mm-hmm. got lots of doctor friends. It's, it's mm-hmm. a huge... Uh, jewel in the crown uh, here of Santa Barbara. At the end of the show, what we do is we we talk about three pretty different things, but we're going to put a bow around this episode and, and give it a title. And you're a newspaper guy, so you didn't write the titles, but you looked and you knew a good title when you saw it. <laughs> so what, what would we call this episode? Well, I think you, you, uh, you pointed out one not too long ago, which was, um, you know, making a difference. Okay. And I think that, you know, certainly I can't say I've uh, I've had the you know the distinction of actually making a difference, but the uh, I've always been sort of intrigued by the opportunity to at least try to make a difference. Um, and uh, well, to yeah, say the world yeah. belongs to those that show up, and you clearly <laughs> are a guy who shows up. Uh, and and so thank you very much, Steve. Um, you're retired now, so we're not uh, going to have to plug anything. Yeah, we're not going to plug a website no, or, no. or anything like that. No. But uh, I'm a free agent. We, we'd <laughs> love to uh, reserve the right to recall the witness to the stand. <laughs> well, sure. It's been a pleasure. I've oh. thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, great. Thank yeah. you. And it just, uh, you know, welcome back and thanks for uh, picking Santa Barbara as the place where yeah. you're going to continue your stewardship and, and adding to the community. It's, uh, you know, it's that's an important thing for us. It's a Mm -hmm. community of citizens. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you. I also want to thank California Lutheran University's School of Management and Tolman and Weicker Insurance Services and our podcasting partner, Polestring Press. You have some new shows up. Uh, occasionally, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, we have all of the shows across the network uh, that are that are new weekly. Uh, Town is is coming out with some new stuff. Uh, Elbows and belly buttons has a new one up. Our comedy podcast, and of of course, Cat and Cloud, who broadcast remotely from Santa Cruz. Uh, now, where they are building a brand new coffee shop uh, on the right on the beaches there of Santa Cruz. So yeah, our uh, the the network's going strong. The empire is growing. The empire is growing. <laughs> I love it. With the um, this show is sponsored also by the 805 Connect Project, which is now three years old. We talked a little bit about that uh, in the Economic Community Project. It is supported by partners and sponsors throughout the region. I want to thank all of them as well. And for more information, you can go to 805connect.com and see what it is that we're up to. Now, Patrick, someone who maybe came into this show thinking about because they, they the publishing or they the title got them and they've listened. Yeah. 
How, how could they help us? Well, I mean, uh, besides rating, writing, and review, and, and supporting us uh, through that, I was I was busily over here looking up uh, the one newspaper subscription that I adhere to right now, and it is the Orange Street News. It is published by a nine-year-old girl in Pennsylvania. Uh, her name is Hildy Kate Lysak, and uh, she's one of my favorite reporters, and she is a, a dogged investigative journalist. Uh, who At with nine. At, at nine with very high standards. Look her up. Uh, the subscription is an annual subscription for $14.98 a year, and it arrives in my mailbox. And it is, it is, it is, uh, it warms your heart and makes you know that, that journalism is doing just fine uh, in this young generation. <laughs> I love it. So she's going to get a bunch of new subscribers. I, I hope, I hope to uh, keep her in business because it is a good newspaper. She digs deep. I yeah, love going that. after vandals, holding them accountable, hitting up city council, making speeches. She uh, she accosted the uh, chief of police the other day because he wouldn't release the name of somebody who had vandalized the community for ten days, and she said that is far too long to wait. <laughs> God bless her. Yeah, I, I love that. That's fantastic. So I I would love to hear from you as well, and I think Hildy, uh, you could would write her a letter. Yeah. Send me a note, Mark at eight oh five connect. Let me know what you like about the show or to our earlier uh, conversation, what you don't like, the contrarian attitude. I'd love to hear that as well. And until next time, this is Mark Sylvester, your host for 805 Conversations.